This episode of the National Trust podcast was made possible by Cotswold Outdoor, recommended outdoor retail partner for the National Trust. Hello and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm Kate Martin, lead ranger in the Northwest. In part one of my adventure at Cragside, Northumberland, I went on a unique safari ride spotting spectacular species and discovered the crazy contraptions made by a pioneering Victorian inventor. But in part two, I'm staying after hours to discover how Cragside gets a little wild after dark. I'm sitting here reclining in a deck chair on a balmy summer evening overlooking the formal gardens at Cragside to the moorlands and the hills beyond. At a thousand acres and with locations as varied as the carriage driveway with panoramic views, fern-covered gorges, coniferous forests, seeing all Cragside has to offer could take you days. So to see as much as I can, I've actually decided to stay within the grounds at one of their on-site holiday homes. So tonight I'm taking full advantage of my VIP access to a lock-in here at Cragside and heading out to discover what it has to offer after dark. I'm leaving the neat manicured lawns, glass houses and the wide open skies of the formal gardens where the holiday cottages are and I'm heading towards the woods to meet a ranger who's going to accompany me on my nighttime adventure. So as I make my way through the trees, I can hear that sunset frenzy of birds settling down for the evening. And crepuscular wildlife, animals that are most active at dusk and dawn, will be emerging now in the twilight. I'm heading up to the clock tower now, which is at the edge of the woods. Standing next to it is Ranger Helen Byrne. Hi, Helen, you're right. Hey, okay, yeah, nice to meet you. So, Helen, I'm really excited about exploring Cragside tonight. Actually, I've got a confession to make. I've never been around Cragside in the dark myself, so we can explore it together for the first time. I've got a few activities lined up for you to help you get really up close and personal with some of the characters that we might see. And it's all about putting your senses to the test. Going to meet some wildlife experts in the Pinetum. Fab, let's go. It's finally starting to get a little bit darker now. And actually walking around at this time of night can actually feel a bit unsettling, even in a place that you really know, like the back of your hand. It sometimes feels like there's those little eyes watching you. There's definitely going to be things watching us. I think things like deer and rabbit. I know that on the estate we have got badgers and foxes. It makes you realise actually just how poor our eyesight is. What are the other animals with sort of standout senses that can help them navigate at night here, Helen? One that stands out for me would be owls. In the UK, the nocturnal creatures that have the most stunningly big eyes are probably some of the owls. My name's Mark Holdred. I'm a professor here at the University of Bristol's biology department. A lot of the stuff owls do, they do by vision. At daylight, they have a tiny pupil because they don't want a lot of light to come in. But at night, these pupil widens, exposing all this massive lens, and that just brings up the sensitivity. But not all of what they do is by vision. Owls are, when they hunt, relying a lot on their sense of hearing. The barn owl has this beautiful white face. The whole 
mirror-like round face is nothing more than a sound collecting device. In its face, to the left and to the right of its beak, are the two ears. The two ears are not the same shape. One of these ears points slightly downwards, the other points slightly upwards. It means that it's not just the left-right information, but also the looking up and looking down information. For example, that's how they can hunt wolves or shrews under a layer of snow. So there's no visual information whatsoever, but they hear them squealing down there and they strike through the loose snow. So I've got a bag of contraptions with me tonight that's going to help us as we're going around. I have got something we can use to give you an idea what it might be like to hear a little bit better, a little bit like an owl. So I've got a parabolic microphone. That essentially is a satellite dish that you can hold by the look of it. Yeah, kind of. So it's sort of a similar shape to an owl's face and it directs the sound in towards the microphone and helps pick up the noises. So I'm just moving the microphone now to see if I can pinpoint anything in particular. Well, that's really noticeable. But you can actually hear the babbling brook. Just move it away again. And then back. How different that sounds. So you can absolutely see how an owl is able to sort of pinpoint that noise. Walking over the wooden bridge into the Pinatum. Pretty imposing, these trees, even earlier on in the day, but in this time of night, because they're so big and they're blocking out so much of the light, it feels quite claustrophobic in here, really. I can see some people ahead of us. Hiya, so I hear you're my expert in nighttime adventures. Hi, I'm Heather Devy. I'm co-director of Wild Intrigue. We like to introduce people to nature in Northern England. Why are you lurking in the Pinatum at this time of the night? It's a good question. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to get you up close and personal with bats. Oh, I love bats. Where are they? Bats are usually all around us, actually. And it's just that we can't hear them. My name is Thomas Neal. I'm a research scientist at the University of Bristol. Bats are nocturnal hunters. So they've evolved a system called echolocation. And what we mean by that is that bats use sound to navigate at night. So what bats do is they produce ultrasonic clicks out of their mouth or sometimes their nose. And they essentially bounce back off objects around the bat and the bat listens for the echoes from these clicks. Other animals that use echolocations are the dolphins and whales. So these use it in a similar way to bats, but they're using it to navigate in the sea. The clicks are ultrasonic, which means they are outside of our hearing range. A young child may be out at night and be able to pick up some of the lower frequencies that bats are using. Unfortunately, as you get older, you tend to lose the higher frequency hearing in your uh, hearing range. So a grown adult would not be able to hear them as well. So this is a heterodyne detector, and it basically means that we can eavesdrop on bat echolocation. And it just transforms it, basically, so that we can understand bat chat. I love the idea of bat chat. That sounds great. So we turn it on at the side. Are you ready for the static? Yeah. Oh, we had a whisper of a pipistrel there. 
So that is a soprano pipistrelle. Can just there he is, yeah. just right there. You get the odd little glimpse, and as soon as you turn your head, it's gone. Oh, there it is again. It's just kind of circling round above us, just round the edges of the trees. They're very busy up there. Every click that you hear is a sound that that pipistrelle's making out of its mouth. That's how fast it is. And then on top of that, it needs to eat the midges, it needs to eat the, the micromoths, and it needs to chat and tell other bats what's going on. So we've heard the pipistrels clicking there. They've got a nice rapid beat. But there are a lot of different sounds that bats can make. So I've got a few on my phone here. This is a brown long-eared bat. It essentially whispers at 15 to 20 kilohertz and it's got a lovely rustle to it. That was a greater horseshoe. It's quite different, isn't it? It's got much more of a whistle to it. Mm. They effectively scream through their noses instead of their mouths. Oh, and so that's why they've got the horseshoe-shaped nose. Exactly. That last one was a Leesler's bat. It's got that kind of sloppy drip. They're so different, so diverse, not just how they look, but how they sound as well. And that's what makes them just so intriguing. I love bats. You obviously love bats as well, but I know an awful lot of people find them a bit sort of freaky and weird. So mm. why do you think that is? You know, they come out at night and you don't really see them, so you don't know quite what they are. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of mystery around them and a lot of myth and folklore, I suppose. Bats are nothing to be afraid of. That is, of course, unless you're a moth, which is just the perfect takeout snack for a bat. Should we go check out some moths? Oh, yeah, definitely. What is it we're looking out for? We're looking for a bit of an eerie glow, and we're going to introduce you to the other half of Wild Intrigue, Kane Scrimger. It's absolutely pitch black. It's the real nighttime specialists out and about. Just walking down the road and then just out of the corner of my eye just spotted something crawling across the road and it was a toad. There's another one. Oh yeah, there's another one. Oh, there we go. The proper crawling. toad crawl. Yeah. They'll be coming out for the slugs and the worms. They'll make sure they get somewhere nice and dark and damp before the sun comes up. I can see the light. Hello, Kane, you all right? Hello there, you all right? Helen, my fellow ranger, you aren't looking particularly pleased. I have to say I'm not really the biggest fan of moths. What now? Mm, yeah, it's just something about the way that they flap and then they're in your bedroom at night, dive bombing you. What kind of moths do you have? <laughs> so, Kane, come on, describe this intriguing contraption in front of us. So this is a moth trap. The moths are attracted to this bulb in here because we've got to have a peek inside to see if anything's actually went inside the trap. So I'll just open this up here and absolutely full of midges in there. Oh, there's a good one. Oh, so this one's beautiful. called a uh, mapwing swift. Oh, what and you an can see all them intricate patterns there. There is bronze and silver almost like a sort of coppery cod. That is an absolutely beautiful moth. Through the air, the species change as well. 
So in the winter and spring, you get sort of brown, quite drab looking moths. Mm -hmm. But as the flowers and the flora develops, you get a lot more colour. So you get pinks and oranges mm -hmm. and golds and metallics with class names like peach blossom and burnished brass, elephant hawk moth, or garden tiger moth. There's other ones that haven't got great names because they're called uncertain because they're really <laughs> difficult to ID as well. <laughs> if you look really closely, you can see its antenna. This one's a female, so it's just got simple structures. If it was a male, they would be really, really sort of fluffy looking. Yeah, like, like feathers. feathers. I don't know whether you know where the nose of a moth might be placed, but it's within these feathery antennae that they have on their foreheads. And males have much bigger and more feathery antennae because they need a better sense of smell. The way the female attracts the males is by chemical signals. They send out pheromones that spread easily and are carried with the wind. And the male would sit somewhere and it's sniffing for these chemical compounds for these pheromones. Air would stream through these feathery antennae and they are studded with receptors. And as soon as a single molecule of this female pheromone interacts with these receptors, the moth takes off. So these moths would fly downstream from the wind. Eventually, they'll find the female moth by its pheromones. People love butterflies in general, but moths, people don't like moths. And it's largely down to just a few handful of species. So you'll get three species that'll eat your clothes and your carpets, and two of them are quite rare. Um, but there's two and a half thousand species of moths in the UK and only 59 species of butterflies. Really, the moths do a lot of the work at night. Mm -hmm. So they're the hard grafters. Um, so they're incredibly important for pollination, but also because there's so many species that they're really important as a food source, a caterpillar food source for our small birds. But what can people do to help moths? Planting um, plants that'll be good for pollinators, but also leaving bits wild for the caterpillars. Have we converted you? I, I do feel like I'm swaying towards being a moth fan. I think it's probably time we release them back into their natural environment. I've got another game for you, Kate. Moth's most powerful sense is their sense of smell. As I'm sure you'll have guessed, you're going to smell your way to the next location. I've got two things for you. A blindfold with some really creepy eyes on it and a can of deodorant. Got that blindfold on now. I'm going to spray some of the Lynx Africa. And you have to use your sense of smell to follow the trail. OK. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. That is quite strong. Oh. I'm going sort of straight ahead at the moment. Gosh, that is so strong. That smells like the right. Oh my word. Going left. I have to say, Helen, this is the weirdest sat nav in the world. Kate, you have reached your destination. So I'm finally going to get to take my blindfold off and have a look where I am. And I am by a lake. There's Heather from Wild Intrigue. Hiya, Heather. Hello again. Why am I standing by a lake in the dark? You mean you can't hear that? Hear what? You can't hear that midnight rave. A midnight rave? 
I'll forgive you because actually it's beneath the surface of the lake. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a pond rave. So what's this strange contraption, Heather? So this is a hydrophone. So it basically means that we can gate crash and eavesdrop <laughs> below the surface. Amazing. All of these freshwater invertebrates, they'll make the noises throughout the day, but they really come to life at night. So we'll plonk it in, we'll use our headphones and see what we can hear. So what we're listening out for is clicks and rustles and pops and slaps. And it's mainly the beetles that make these noises. And you've got your damselfly nymphs, your dragonfly nymphs. They're all hunting different creatures, claiming the territories Mm -hmm. together. So there's drama unfolding just below the surface. Can you hear that kind of rhythmic beat? Well, that's one of my favourite sounds. This is a, a water boatman, and it's really amazing because he's got the loudest mating call, if you like, compared to his size than any other animal. And he's not singing. Can you guess what he might be doing? No, is he like sort of rubbing his legs together? He's rubbing appendages together, but it's not his legs. It's his genitals. Wow, uh, okay. Yeah, welcome to the pond rave. (laughs) Well, Helen, all good parties must come to an end and it is the early hours of the morning now and the bed at the holiday cottage is starting to feel very appealing. Do you think after the experiences tonight you'll look at your place of work, this lovely crag side with a different set of eyes? Yeah, I think I will actually. It's been really cool. There are a few important things that people need to be aware of, aren't there, if they are going to have a walk around a place like this after dark. I think it would be really important to plan a safe route, not getting too close to water, mm-hmm. not getting too close to maybe cliff edges. Always have a torch handy and the phone with you. And really, I would advise asking the location for guidelines as well. Go and enjoy a well-earned rest. I think we both <laughs> need yeah, one. Definitely. It's so different. Cragside at night to Cragside in the daytime. This experience isn't something exclusive to Cragside. This is an experience you can have in your own back garden outside the front of your house in your local park. Get outside, experience the nighttime, all the sounds, the smells, even the sights if you can see anything. It's just a completely different world and one that everybody should feel that they can get out and enjoy. Thanks for listening to the National Trust podcast. If you want to find out more about staying in a National Trust holiday home and experiencing our places after hours, head to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash holidays. Please remember to use common sense and follow site safety advice if you do go exploring after dark. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can follow the National Trust podcast on your favourite podcast app or find us at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. For now, from me, Kate Martin, goodbye. This episode of the National Trust podcast was made possible by Cotswold Outdoor. 
recommended outdoor retail partner for the National Trust.